The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Spirit Matters. If you're used to seeing me co-hosting Spirit Matters with uh, Dennis Ramundi, understand that that uh, iteration ended several months ago, uh, but you can access our extensive archive at uh, spiritmatterstalk.com and the uh, YouTube channel of the same name. Uh, But here we are in the new version Spirit Matters 2.0, if you like, and uh, on this new uh, platform of mindbodyspirit.fm, where we carry on the tradition of uh, conversations with spiritual teachers and experts of various kinds who uh, can help you along your own path. And today... We have uh, two guests for the price of one, Samuel Bonder and Linda Groves Bonder, who, as you might guess from their names, are a married couple and uh, work together as spiritual teachers through the Human Sun Institute, which they co-founded. Their uh, life work, as they describe it, is, quote, to bring heart-based embodied awakening to a worldwide audience, unquote. I know Samuel uh, from before as the author of several books, including Healing the Spirit Matter Split, and as the founder of uh, the process known as Waking Down, or Waking Down in Mutuality. Uh, Linda joined him in that work in the mid-90s, and they've been teaching and developing programs together ever since. So welcome, Samuel and Linda. Thank you so much, Phil. It's great to be with you today. Hold on, Uh, something just happened, and I'm not hearing you. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. Looks like everything's okay on our end. Okay, here it is. Okay, well, audience, excuse us for that little glitch. I'm not going to stop and start again. <laughs> it's a podcast, not network television. No okay. worries. <laughs> Life happens, right? That's right. So thank you. Thanks for being with us. And um, I'm going to begin by 
uh, as I always like to, by asking our guests to uh, fill us in a bit about their origin stories uh, spiritually. Um, tell us about your your paths, uh, your early influences. Bring it up to the present, if you wish. And I will. We'll, should we go one at a time? I'll let you choose who goes first. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thank you again, Phil, for having us on your program. It's quite an honor, and I hope that this event will really speak to some people. And um, I wish the best for your ongoing podcast shows here. Thank you. Yeah. So my my journey has been very interesting and very eclectic through many years of a particular kind of seeking that never really took shape in a formed community or um, being being with a particular teacher for too long. I was raised Catholic in the Midwest, and when I was a young girl, Catholicism was very important to me until I was in my mid-teens, and then I realized that there were some conflicts in my heart and in what I was feeling about the religion that I was raised in, and I decided to start exploring other things. I graduated college from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and then I promptly moved out to California to become a singer and actress and seeker of what it might be, you know, fulfilling in my life as far as spirit and as far as a direction in my spirituality. So through those years, the first few years of me being here, I was dabbling in all kinds of things. I did a kundalini process. I went and sat with several different teachers and really listened. I read some books. Uh, Gurdjieff, um, Deepak Chopra was a big influence for me early on. Um but nothing ever really, really stuck, you know. So I kept finding that I was interested in filling what felt to me like a void in my belly. And I didn't know what that was. I just knew something was missing. And I got involved in a lot of new age things and started doing hands-on healing just quite naturally and organically with friends and people who needed help. And nothing really, really filled that void, even though I felt like I was learning and gleaning lots of wonderful things through all of the processes and individuals that I listened to. Then I had heard from a partner of mine at the time who was living with someone in his household, that there was this man named Samuel Bonder doing this amazing work of conscious embodiment. And that was intriguing to me. And I, I was very curious about Samuel. And so my partner and I at the time showed up at one of Samuel's sittings. And this was early in 1994. Well, October 94 was when I first met Samuel. And then early, early that year was when I got together with this partner. So we would show up every week at Samuel's place. And I realized that that, that eclectic seeking of mine 
was falling away. I had had intentions of continuing with learning more about Tibetan Buddhism. I had intentions on going to sit with another teacher that was also intriguing to me, but I kept finding myself going right back to Samuel's apartment and sitting with these amazing people that were showing up there. Eventually, things started Mm -hmm. cooking for me, even though for me, his traditional background was very different from what I was from and what I had experienced. He would have this teaching that in some respects would go right over my head. And I I wasn't quite understanding some of the, 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 the lineage from where he was from and some of the way that he was shaping his teaching. But what happened was, even though my mind wasn't grasping it and understanding it, my heart just kept opening. And I just kept finding myself landing more and more in my body, in presence, in connection with the others who were there, and particularly with Samuel, who became my permanent teacher at the time. All the other things fell away, and I focused solely with Samuel. And then this other couple who was teaching on Friday nights, they had their awakenings with Samuel's assistance as well. So it was quite wonderful to be able to discover that this beautiful person sitting on the floor with everybody else, you know, teaching his teachings was opening up my heart and opening up that place that I felt was a void. Eventually, I had what would be called a witness awakening. And then two years after that, or no, not two years, nine months after that, I had what Samuel calls in our work now, the second birth, which means the the realization of consciousness and form or matter simultaneously being as one or Samuel back in the day, and still does call it the onlyness of conscious embodiment. And so that's what I realized in 96. And then I started teaching three months after that and guiding individuals into their own particular freedom, if you will. That's kind of a roundabout. <laughs> no, good. Thank you. Samuel, um, Let's hear your origin story, which I know is quite different. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was uh, born into a uh, first-generation U.S.-born uh, Jewish uh, family uh, in 1950. And uh, shortly after that, we were, we were in New York, shortly after that moved to North Carolina where we were in a very small town and one of three Jewish families in a town of 7,000 or so. And so I had a pretty massive exposure to Protestants, especially Christianity in my boyhood. And then at a prep school I went to as well, also in the South uh, and didn't really have any spiritual inclination or longing uh, until uh, getting to college in the late 60s and participating in the anti-war movement, nearly getting thrown out of college for some of the more aggressive participation that I did. 
which I never regretted. But the next year when I got back to school, the activist, the political activist, wind had gone out of my sails. I felt uh, I had this particular image, came out of nowhere, didn't read it or hear it from anyone. It was as if everybody on all the sides of every issue was operating within a cage or a shroud of mainly self-oriented mirrors. So we're always seeing ourselves, and every now and again, we actually see what's out there. And I felt very personally convicted of this insight. Whoever else it might be true of, it sure was of me. And that was what led me to open, okay, God, if you really exist, uh, you know, I know I had my bar mitzvah, I didn't meet you there. Please show up, because I need help here. And things started happening. I began to feel some kind of presence guiding me. My early influences were Martin Buber, especially I and Now, Relationship, The Other, which, of course, is shows up in the immutuality part of our, our work, weighing down immutuality. Thomas Merton was another early influence at that time. I didn't really feel, other friends were turning to, to the East. I didn't feel ready. Uh, and then at a certain point I did, I'd been up in the Colorado Rockies on an Outward Bound program, came down and read uh, Dear to Your Heart, Autobiography of a Yogi which in my case literally blew my mind. Uh, after reading it, I wondered if yoga was going to be part of my path, and I got blown right out the top into who knows what, except when I landed again here, it was like, I guess that's a yes. And various influences uh, in generally the more ascending kind of schools of yoga um, exposure to many different traditions, Sufism, Tantric Buddhism. You know, we were all sampling everything back in the days and being at least aware of it, reading here and there. But the the major determining influence was Ramana Maharshi, who uh, right around the time I figured out I'm not likely to get back up to that place or whatever it is, above it all by my own efforts, even with the help of gurus. Um, and I was just wondering, what could my path be? He spoke of the heart, a particular site in the heart. It's actually on the right, not in the center where the chakra, yoga chakra is. And he said, this is actually the seat of consciousness uh, in realization. And yogis would ask him, you know, is is, is the way to get there the same as Sushumna Nadi, the royal road of yoga? He said, well, it's a continuation. It comes back down into the heart. And when I first tried meditating with his self-inquiry process, that very day, in that meditation, there was some kind of activation at that place. I didn't even know it was, I didn't know there was part of my heart over here on the right. Um, but that was so so powerful that I knew I had to deepen in that. I had to have a teacher who could relate to that. I didn't know of many. Found a young American named then uh, originally Franklin Jones, then Bubba Frijan around the time I got involved in 73, 74. And a series of names subsequently. Series of names subsequently. Catalog them. I was like, wow, you got I think all of them. 
<laughs> the last of which was Adi Da. Adi Da, yes. And so I was, you know, he proclaimed himself to be a heart realizer, living it in a different manner than Ramana had, who was a much more traditional, you know, yogi renunciate uh, in the Indian style. And um, after nearly 20 years, um, you know, keep everything nice and brief here, it dawned on me, this isn't a fit anymore. Felt I had lost my moorings and personal integrity, trying to please and surrender to the guru. Had become something of a, something like a, a courtier in a medieval court in the society around him, which I think a lot of people with experience in these communities can relate to. And I knew I had to find my own integrity again at any cost. And in any case, he had given up on my generation of devotees awakening, but I didn't go to him to become an eternal devotee. I was in the quest and left and not knowing if I'd ever find my way within just a few months landed in this quality of awakeness, bodily being hereness. You could use all kinds of language to try to describe it, but it was that pressureless mystery amidst all the pressures of daily living, and it was unshakable. And so from, a, from that point, uh, fairly quickly, others began, friends began noticing that there was something about being with me that was activating things in them. And having been exposed very personally and also by what I was aware of to the tendency of these things to be presented through relatively relatively feudal or monarchic social structures. The great one above us all, everybody else in some cases literally considered an existential subordinate. And I felt, well, you know, let's see if we can democratize this stuff. And long story short, as we've been doing for over 30 years now, and we have indeed upwards of a thousand people have landed in something like that quality, non-separate or non-dual conscious embodiment, um, in such a way that, you know, that quality of seeking is over. Whatever else they may be looking for, that's no longer the point. And um, at this point, uh, our work is going to, I like to say democratization has its challenges, no matter where you're trying to do it. Certainly in spirituality, we've had our, our issues and challenges. But at this point, uh, Linda and I in particular are very clear about our path and work mm -hmm. and serving the greater capital H heart awakening of humanity is what we're all about, what gets mm -hmm. us up in the morning. And we love the work we do with people and are looking to reach and touch a lot of others who may be benefited in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good summary, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, you. Should, I should add, <clears throat> inconceivable what she has brought to this work. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, this is a true equal full partnership, uh, as well as being my beloved wife. Um, but her contribution is quite different in some ways. And really, there is a synergy that must be acknowledged and mm -hmm. happy to. So.
<laughs> so I was going to, uh, I have uh, uh, areas I, uh, I want to go into about your work. Mm -hmm. But since uh, a, a few um, points from your personal stories uh, stood out, I, so I want to follow up, lest I forget. Uh, okay. First, you met, if I am got the story correct, when uh, Samuel was in a position of being a teacher and Linda as a student. Yes. At some point, there was a segue to a different kind of relationship. Yes. Now, I'm raising this because um, I am very interested and, and uh, involved in issues surrounding ethics and abuses of power in spiritual communities. I, I'm on the board of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. Just uh, we're taping this in early June of 2023. I was just at a conference at Harvard Divinity School about abuses of power in spiritual communities. And one of the things post Me Too, especially, um, that everybody is uh, aware of and concerned about are the uh, the power differentiations, uh, differentials between teachers and students, and what happens, the, the ease with which uh, sexual exploitation can uh, come about in those instances, but also the distinct possibility that a genuine love affair can evolve in those situations as yours obviously proved to be. So my question for you is, um, because I know you're, you're also both aware of such things, and um, how do we in uh, people in the spiritual communities of different kinds deal with uh, feelings when they arise and uh, separate out possibilities of um, exploitation from uh, what might be a, a genuine romantic and karmic uh, in, engagement. Hmm. Have you given any thought to that? <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge and very important question. And I can speak to answering that question primarily from my own experience with Samuel back in the day. And that is, that I immediately felt such an integrity about who Samuel was, what he was teaching and speaking, how he was showing up in, in groups that he would host in his apartment and other places. And I was taken by that because I, in my seeking, I had experienced individuals coming on, you know, and me being very clear in myself what is appropriate for me and what's not and that's difficult for some people you know it's difficult for anyone man or woman to really go into to work in that that edge right so when when I was a, a student of Samuel's he never approached me as you know I I'd love to take you out or I would love to explore a relationship 
I was actually the one who generated more of that, that movement toward him. My partner and I of three months, we were friends prior to, we broke up, but we remained friends. He continued to come and sit with Samuel and I would be there. And I was not partnering with Samuel at the time. It took a long time for me to realize there's something more here for me. And I know that Samuel was attracted, but he never approached me. He would say, this has to come through you if ever anything is going to happen. And it kind of did. <laughs> In many ways. Yeah, that yeah. Was so that's my own experience. But to go back to the general um, sense of what your question is asking, I would encourage um, every individual, um, especially the teachers who are putting themselves in an authoritative position to live with integrity and to honor the fact that if someone is in a relationship, and this is either your, your female teacher or male teacher, if someone is in a relationship to honor that relationship and to not uh, aggressively approach or bring in these kinds of things. I mean, I would just want that for anyone, whether they're teacher or not. Um, that would be one thing. And then the second thing for the practitioner is to be able to ask for help if you're questioning. Bring it into mutuality. Go directly to the teacher and say, this feels whatever it feels, uncomfortable or I am attracted. You know, have the conversations. That's also, I feel, very important. So thank you. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, um, particularly having grown up in the, I mean, literally my, my whole early adulthood was in a society where the guru mm -hmm. had access to multiple women. And so coming out of that, I was very sobered by that because I, I, I felt I had, I had felt and I had seen up close and personal the downside of that whole structure, that whole yes. set of assumptions. Mm -hmm. And you know, nonetheless, I didn't want to, thank you for acknowledging, didn't want to just shut down the possibility. And, you know, frankly, for me, the idea of, well, I can get intimately involved with someone, but not have a direct spiritual engagement between the two of us seemed pretty unlikely, as well as foreign. So when things started cooking with Linda, um, you know, I just made that point to her. I said, yeah, I'm definitely, clearly something's cooking between us. You have to take the complete initiative, every step. I am not going to generate anything because should this not work out, mm -hmm. yeah. want the best shot at this not compromising that sacred spiritual yes. adventure that was what originally brought us together. Yes. And so, you know, luckily or, you know, gracefully, all of that, uh, Linda was such a mature human being that she was able to hold that very challenging both end. And we could meet in an existential equality and non-power differential while 
employing the distinction, you could say the functional hierarchy of her coming to me for the benefit of this awakening. So Good. Thank uh, I thank you for being candid about that. I didn't mean to spring a personal question of that nature on you, but I figured you could handle it. Um, <laughs> no problem. Um, <laughs> but you. along similar lines, since you mentioned uh, that uh, teacher, uh, originally Franklin Jones, um, there were a lot of um, issues around his tenure. Uh, some of them had to had to do, as you as you said, with with sexual relations with uh, disciples. Um, but there are also other kinds of power issues that uh, have been uh, re that were reported widely at the time and is common knowledge now. Um, you're functioning, the two of you, as independent teachers. You've seen uh, the the hazards of idolization of guru figures and what happens when people project uh, certain ideal uh, qualities onto the guru and put them on pedestals. How do you avoid that among your students who might start treating you in ways uh, or exalting you in ways you may not welcome or may think is not terrible, entirely healthy? Another great question. And yeah, we're happy to address that. Uh, again, from the beginning with me, the, the impulse here was, let's democratize as best we can. Knowing full well that everybody's personal and our collective shadow stuff was going to get kicked into gear. And, you know, it, it I mean, the, the, the full response would become a long story. Mm -hmm. But the, the essence of it is it just takes on ongoing, intense attention to these dynamics and the willingness to keep encountering and meeting one another as best we can to retire and move beyond them or have them not compromise, you know, the like, tragically compromise the greater thing that we're all committed to. And yeah, it's, it's a real workout. I mean, the collective shadow of groups is something I think mm -hmm. we're doing well in society generally and in the spiritual scene generally we're doing well with starting to really take personal shadow into account i mean the differences between how we understand trauma now and 30 years ago when i started are huge so grateful for that mm -hmm. but the collective stuff is harder and you know i think it's going it's going to merit a lot of attention among those of us who feel like we are called to be leaders, mm -hmm. be working the cutting edge for humanity. If Can you, um, yeah. I'm sorry, elaborate on what you mean by uh, collective shadow? Well, the ways in which 
collectives work to deal with outcroppings of individual shadow and how that gets processed in group situations. Mm. And, you know, part of how that tends to get processed is that you have this power differential and anything that occurs, you know, this literally has been stated, the guru has no karma, any, any problems that come up, it's your stuff. None of it is his or hers. That's a whole can of worms. Because then what winds up happening is, among other things, very likely the students wind up not only having to work with their own stuff, mm -hmm. but also the intolerable, unconscious burden of the leaders. Mm -hmm. that and is their fellow devotees. Yes. 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 yes, and then and the then, constant feeling of being made wrong, yeah, yeah and yeah, you're yeah. not doing it right. You're not and practicing correctly. Yeah, all of that. And the fear of being ostracized. You're being yes. ostracized. All of the above. And the, yes. the the other side is how collectives unconsciously work to get back to homeostasis. We could say, you know, to everything being workable when there is, you know, a, a kind of a shadow challenge. And that's where, you know, we've, we've seen in our work, people can move into groupthink. Mm -hmm. People can move into what uh, one author called the uh, scapegoat mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are among the instinctual, really, really deeply inbred, I mean, from tribal times, instincts of the way, you know, people process this stuff. And so I hope that starts to answer your question. Yeah, it does. And I'm, I know we could, you know, this is something uh, ongoing and uh, evolving uh, topic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I appreciate the, the uh, word democratization. Um, and no, it might, you know, it's a delicate thing because you you are an authority figure and yeah. people come to you because you know things they don't and have skills they don't and they need. And yet you want to have a, a democratic kind of thing. So well, it's yeah. delicate. Just real quick, I'll be very fast. Yeah. A big important move for us only in these last four or five years or less is repositioning from teacher to coach. Mm. Sure, we teach, we have teachings, mm -hmm. but they are secondary to, we're here to meet you where you are. We're here to serve yes. what you want, not necessarily our agenda, and we're not going to require you to conform yourself to our vision of who you should be. Yeah, I was going to address that a bit also. We call it existential equality. We're all equal in being. And yes, there is a differential when someone steps into either a teacher role or a coaching role or whatever, a helper, a healer. And so the, these are the places where you can, as best you can, live in real mutuality and in that equality and meet each individual right where they are and support them and listen deeply, not just with your ears, but with your whole being, your heart, every part of who you are and help 
these individuals land more confidently in themselves and not feel like they're doing it wrong or missing something or they're not the great practitioner and they're not doing all the practices and disciplines. I always like to say our process is not a cookie cutter process. It is so individually oriented and in some cases in groups as well, oriented to what the need and being is in these moments of teaching and coaching, whatever you want to call it. So we, we're, we're just regular guys, <laughs> kind of, you know, we come across like just normal people. We don't come across with a edge of we're the teachers and you're the student. Um, and if that ever seeps in a little bit, you know, we got to check ourselves. And you have each other to do that. That's yeah. And hopefully be checked, be yeah. checked by others. And to be checked by others. Which interestingly, that we we built that into the waiting down and mutuality work from pretty much day one That's and more right. and more over those years of the later 90s and on. Yeah. And one of the most empowering moments of people's journey to their awakening and beyond that has often been the moments they dared to talk to us or one of the other teachers in our earlier stage of our work and say, hey, I got an issue with you. Will you hear me out? Yeah. And the only practice in my second book, Waking Down, the only actual practice I recommended, I called coconut yoga, meaning everybody, and it's explicitly said in the book, especially the teachers, has to be capable of and willing to let your mindset of what you think reality is hit the rocks like a coconut dropping. And when you sit back up, you're able to say, talk to me. I'm listening. And if I've done wrong, you bet I'm going to apologize and make amends. I know how to say those, that really difficult mantra for so many people, I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's not a, I'm sorry, but yeah. it's a, I'm sorry. Tell me how that lands in yeah. you. Tell me how you're feeling. Yeah. You know, that, that's a hard thing to, to do sometimes as well. We all get triggered. Oh, yes. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, now, um, tell me and, and uh, our audience, what prompted the, the creation of your waking down originally, Daniel? And why? Because I remember hearing about it for the first time and thinking, that's a good phrase. Because uh, I had a sense of what you must mean by it. But tell us, you know, how, how that came to be and why the term. Yes, thank you. Um, well, you know, to... To go back to my, my former guru, uh, Adida, part of what he contributed that I'm to this day and forever grateful for is a realization that opened ground for a fuller humanness, though he didn't take it into mutuality, and that was his choice, and so be it. Mm -hmm. But what I'd gotten from both him and Ramana Maharshi, who through whom that heart awakening began for me, was literally a kind of a falling, a, 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 a waking that was happening on the way down. <laughs> uh, and 
in my own process, when I left Adidas work, uh, the the dropping into a steady access to that witnessing quality occurred with a very prominent sense of it was as if I did a back fall off a diving board into this warm pool of my own unbounded being. And so there was direct experience that prompted that language. And then as the fuller realization stabilized, you know, sure enough, there was a sense of having, one of the ways I describe it is you're the center of gravity of one's sense of identity comes down into whether or not it feels specifically heart-based, it's a whole bodily quality. And people don't know how much up they've been, including spiritual seekers, including realizers of one kind or another. Uh, there's that dropping into the paradox of simultaneously being unbounded and ever so pressurized. And so that's how it became emblematic of the work. And why the term waking down? Why did you find that meaningful? Well, because it's how waking happened for me was primarily a down process, having had access to what's up. <laughs> the waking up part. The yes. waking up part, although that had been very initiatory long ago. I had not come into, you know, didn't become a full-fledged kundalini yogi or anything like that. But, you know, I knew most people were thinking of and deeper than thinking in the meme of, I got to get up and out of this. Waking up, that's what it's all about. And so that language was suggesting, as you picked up on, there, there can be another perspective and reality on this that might be more wholesome for us all. And embodied. The, the, the sense yeah. I got when I first heard it, because of the timing, it was a time when there was, a, uh, a, there was just so much emphasis on uh, we are not the body, we are yeah. not the mind. And, and uh, 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 in certain spiritual circles, a lot of uh, what can only be called escapism or, you know, not wanting to be part of the material world and uh, all that. And so I thought, oh, uh, I welcome somebody who yeah. seems to be reversing <laughs> that and you know, taking the the embodied part of our existence uh, seriously in a spiritual context, which wow. is how I interpreted it at the time. Yes. And how did it come? How did you go, and why, from waking down to waking down in mutuality? Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's important. Uh, again, yes, yeah, really great, and you know, yeah, welcome you to add in on this. Maybe I should. Well, just real quick to to address the waking yeah, down aspect. When you, Phil, were talking about, you know, so much of spirituality in the past had been about waking up and negating matter. And uh, the body doesn't matter, just only abide as consciousness itself. And I had heard a lot about those teachings. However, when Samuel said waking down and said, this is consciousness in the body, in form, in matter, you know, every part of who we are cellularly, I went, yes, 
nobody's teaching that as far as I can tell. This was 30 years ago or, or not quite 30 years for me. But it was very intriguing and that and very important to be able to realize the fact that you are divinely human and it's not one or the other it's simultaneously married together and so yeah i just wanted to bring that in and then to to bring in my my quick answer to the mutuality aspect that also was really important a few years into samuel's teachings and of course i kind of moved into uh, assisting and Others moved into teaching alongside of Samuel and I and the community. Um, the mutuality aspect was hugely important because if you're going to embody here, if you're going to have whole being realization, whole being conscious embodiment, you have to bring in the fact that you have relationships with family, with friends, with coworkers. And to be able to bring that awakeness into the world and into living this human existence as a divinely human being, that is so, so important. And it is a generator. It's a generator in each connection that we have with individuals and groups, but it's also energetically, it's a generator worldwide, you know, all creation generator. Ooh, I feels good to speak that, you know? Anyway. Yeah, so... Go ahead, Samuel. Just to add to that, for me, in terms of the evolution of the work, Martin Buber was always looking over my shoulder. I mean, I had gone east and eventually to Ramana Adida for the transcendental part with Da explicitly was about you know, having it be whole bodily, although many aspects of that work didn't work for me, uh, eventually. But I knew as our work got underway uh, that the mutuality part was was going to be more and more important. And initially, it wasn't really possible to emphasize it because there was so much of what you were talking mm -hmm. about up and out and getting away. And so many people have been burned in these communities. And so, you know, most of the people who came around were people who are, you know, grizzled veterans <laughs> with a few war wounds uh, or not a few. So at some point, I think it was in the early 2000s, I remember saying to the, at that point, growing group of fellow teachers and mentors and so on, I said, you know, I think we've, we can still call it waking down. That's definitely a, a designation. But the fuller appreciation is weighing down in mutuality. And the mutuality principle is of co-equal divinity, realness, and importance with the waking and the down, which is both embodiment and also shadow responsibility and integration. So it, it's, it's a co-equal principle and... That actually makes a big difference. Really, what's realized here, for instance, is not so much self-realization as self plus other realization. Or we could even say, thank you, James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber. They got that book, Your Symphony of Selves. Selves plus others realization. 
taking all of our pieces into account. Yes. One of the uh, things I've noticed over the years in in the uh, non-dual world of uh, spirituality is uh, 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 in many cases a reluctant or surprised uh, acknowledgement of uh, the fact that uh, non-duality includes the dual and that um, if you are kind of a non-dual fundamentalist, uh, that where uh, any relational element is considered illusory, um, you miss out on uh, qualities like devotion oh. and love because that requires some separation. And, and discovering that the great non-dual teachers I always looked up to, from Ramana to Shankara and all that, had a devotional life. Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, Which, you know, that was uh, critical to me. So tell me how, how, what what in the East might be called bhakti and, you know, devotional aspect of it fits into your work. Well, thank you. Um, Very centrally, and, and I'm glad getting back to this, one thing I didn't mention, and it was a significant uh, oversight in my awakening process, you know, really what happened was not that suddenly I got very good at my inquiry into consciousness. The major animating factor that made it several months instead of who knows how many more years to, quote unquote, get here this way, was the divine feminine. Mm. Um, and you know particular forms of her ranging from Mount Tamalpais here in the Bay Area Ma Tam I call her to one of the particular goddess manifestations of Hinduism that I had actually come into during my time with Adi Da noticed and then she came into presence and there was a whole kind of crazy dance because I wasn't really looking to find that but so to speak, she got me. So, you know, our house, I mean, there are Kuan Yin's all over the place uh, that are so associated with Linda. And we've got, you know, various other forms. Uh, I would say we're both a bit promiscuous in this <laughs> regard. Not one specific That's god right. goddess. Once again, eclectic. <laughs> eclectic, thank you. It's probably a better word. Um, Diverse. Diverse, yes. yes, and, and inclusive, inclusive. Thank you. That's even better. Like that. And, and oh, I can speak to that one too. But go ahead. And, well, yeah, and you know, bhakti, uh-huh. and also so many forms of the imaginal mm-hmm. access for us are all implicit and potential for people. Some people gravitate into or came from and remain strong in one or another form of Hindu term bhakti, devotion by whatever language we speak it. A lot of people, their relationship with Jesus came online or the Christ came online at a whole other depth after this awakeness and as part of it. Mm -hmm. So all of those multidimensional 
possibilities uh, are inherent here and we encourage people to explore and don't lay any necessity on them. And to bring in the inclusiveness, it's not merely about the imaginal or gods, goddesses, uh, entities and deities. It is, it's about nature. It's yes. about our beloved pets. Yes. You know, it's about our family. Um, devotion shows up in so many different forms. I can't tell you how many times I've been brought to tears just by looking at something that is just so amazingly beautiful in nature or laughing so hysterically hard about something silly that our cat did, <laughs> one of our cats. You know, I mean, that is, that's love and devotion right there, too. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Another I'm, quick, another very quick on this. When the one time I got to Ramana's ashram, in 1994, after my work had begun, um, I went up. You may know the there are these caves up on the yeah hill. yeah I've been there yeah so I went up and you know we went up early in the morning and as we were walking up it was cool and these bands of monkeys were all huddled with each other keeping each other warm picking you know lice out of each other's fur and then after I came out of his cave. I was waiting for my then partner, this was before I met Linda, uh, to come out of the mother's cave there. And the monkeys were going nuts. They were trying to steal stuff and they were playing and all that. And I, I had wondered going in, is there going to be a teaching for me here? Am I going to get something? It didn't happen in the cave. That was all lovely, silent, calm. It was out on the patio. I realized we're monkeys. <laughs> We have that we have we are very social beings and if that isn't brought into place fully we're missing out so that that's great uh, in the time we have remaining five minutes or so um let's uh give you an opportunity to let the audience know about your work um tell us for example uh what the human sun institute is and what does it mean to become a human son? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Very, you know, <laughs> uh, great question. Um, human Son Institute is the name of our company, which happens to be for-profit for a variety of reasons. We may very well establish a non-profit for the sake of acquiring and empowering a sanctuary later, which is something we'd like to have while we're here and leave behind. But it is the, the umbrella in which our work can unfold. And we especially uh, focus a lot of our personal work with people in one-on-one -on -one or couples coaching or group coaching formats. Um, we have a variety of publications and recorded courses and more on the way. There are a couple of what we feel will be our really major books to leave behind that haven't appeared yet. And we feel we frankly owe the world this, you know, to get that done in our remaining time. We also have some guided meditations yeah. that really help people land more fully in themselves and perhaps work with some shadow pieces or whatever it might be that they're feeling are blocks to their spirit moving forward. And these are accessible online, I assume. Yes. So yes. we're, yeah. as you know, we're, we're 
at the present moment, we're in the process, feels like the home stretch at last, of getting our website a not long needed renovation, but literally up to date. I mean, it's, you know, the, the Dharma is continuing to refine itself as we as we're speaking. Well, but, listeners, uh, by the time uh, this is posted, their website will be up and running, presumably. And it is what? What is the URL? www.saniel, like Daniel with an S, S-A-N-I-E-L-A-N-D, Saniel and Linda, L-I-N-D-A, dot com. And there will be, uh, you know, a way to plug in. We have a, a special master class, we're calling it, called The Two Kinds of Joy and Why It's Okay to mo- Maximize Both. <laughs> uh, what do you mean by the two kinds of joy? Well, um, very quickly, the the shakeable kind, the kinds that come and go. The transient kind. Yes. The transient kind and the unshakable. Yes. The unlosable. Yes. And we're big advocates of the unlosable yeah. as part of your life. One of yeah. my uh, my earliest uh, teacher called that living 200%. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Um, all right, one quick question. What is what do you mean by the white hot yoga of the heart? Mm. Well, uh, thank you. Um, there are degrees of intensification of one's consciousness, if you will, one's being that can take place. And the white hot quality of that intensification is something that I had learned about initially from Adi Da, um, not to say that what he means is what I'm talking about, but I'm using my language. But that kind of intensification strengthens, in some ways, immeasurably, that unshakable awareness of the onlyness, the prior unity, the inherent unity of what appear to be all the separate forms and which we have to relate to in their separateness as well. So Very that's good. an intensification. And Thank you do, both. Go ahead. I do want to say just quickly as we end. Well, oh, I just wanted to to um, let people know that that URL, SanielandLinda.com, that is up and running. It's our old site, which will be yeah. replaced by the new site. So if anyone is interested in joining our mailing list, please stay in touch. We have group meetings every other week. Yeah. And um, Saniel hosts a, a guided or a meditation, a very deep hour meditation yeah. every other week. And we have other things available. So wanted to throw that out there. And, Good. and we're very excited. Uh, you know, even though uh, we're a bit long in the tooth here, we feel very youthful. Um, and You're so, younger than I am, Samuel. There you go. <laughs> good, good, good for us both. We're we're yes, we are. But we have a ten-year vision: a million hearts illumined, not meaning necessarily awakened fully, but lightened and brightened, and a thousand people more coming into this deep awakening, and at least a hundred becoming what we call heart activators whose own, going back to your question, what does it mean to become a human son? A primary part of that is that your very presence lightens and brightens life for those around you, (laughs) may pull them into a little more sensitivity to what's still hidden. That's part of the process. But to become competent 
whether you quote anybody else or not, we're not looking to have waking down and mutuality teachers. We don't. We want people to go their own way and do things in their style, whether they're teachers or not, coaches or not, for many more people to become servants of humanity and life in this kind of way. We have a phrase, the sun in your heart is rising. Yes. And this is a heart realization, not just a heart opening realization, but a heart realization that includes all things. And so that sun in your heart starts to blaze with the movement forward in, in your spirit, in your body. That sounds like a perfect way to end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to thank you both, Daniel and Linda, for uh, being with us. I want to uh, encourage listeners to uh, go to the website, their website and check out what they have to offer. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Yes, blessings on your journey, no matter where it leads you. All of you beautiful individuals out there being change makers in your own right. And you too, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you both. And thank you, listeners. Um, After you finish going to their website, you can go to mine and sign up for my mailing list. Uh, I promise not to annoy you. Uh, I I send out regular missives with useful offerings. Check out uh, all that I'm up to, my books and so forth. And uh, please uh, subscribe to this podcast if you're just discovering it so you don't miss any uh, episodes. And um, email me with your suggestions. I'm always eager to hear, uh, especially if you have suggestions of Uh, people who would make good guests. So again, thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, Samuel and Linda, and we'll see you next time. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.